just under a month ago, we recorded an episode with Anastasia Osipova, a scholar of Soviet and contemporary Russian culture at the University of Colorado Boulder, who spoke to us on the ground in Kiev. At the time, the English-speaking media space had been sustaining a veritable shepherd's tone of alarmist headlines regarding an impending Russian invasion of Ukraine, and moreover, the ramifications of a Russian-Ukrainian war on NATO's unity, Europe's energy security, and the general global balance of powers. Downstream from the mainstream news, the pod and substack class had been feeding off this same news cycle with their own hot takes and forecasts. On this episode, we too turned our attention to Ukraine to consider what the prospect of war, or in Ukraine's case, some seven years of a slow-burning, ever-present war, does to communication, the legibility of information, and how this shift impacts the culture over time. While the situation has escalated dramatically in the past 48 hours, we are making this episode public with the hope that it can provide some further context, particularly regarding the complications of navigating murky political identities, including the nation's right-wing and self-declared neo-Nazi factions, and a very challenging symbolic space. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is Anastasia Osipova. You can find more New Models by joining us at patreon.com slash newmodels and sign up for future announcements for channel at channel.xyz. Let's get into it. New Models Special Report. So we are being joined by Anastasia Osipova, who I know from New York, but who has her feet in many different regions. And right now we are speaking to her in Ukraine, because if you speak English, you've been inundated the past few weeks by... Maybe you should say the personal story of what made this cross okay, the threshold. Okay, I should. Yes. For- okay. So last night, my mother, she called me incredibly concerned that since I live in Germany, my heat might be cut off. (laughs) And I was like, okay, we've had a really crazy week doing a launch of this other project. And I've been mildly paying attention to the headlines, but not digging in deeply. And she said, well, we're going to go to war with Russia because Putin is going to invade Ukraine and Germany's gas supply is going to be cut off. And I was like, okay, sorry, what? I mean, I've seen these stories, but as I started looking through the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the FT and these different media sources, there just seemed to be the volume turned up to 10 on this subject. But maybe as you can clarify for us, it's nothing new. Russia's involvement in Ukraine and Belarus is age old. And so we thought we would ask you about the sentiment on the ground to give us some longer range historical perspective on this relationship and where we should be directing our attention. So first, Anastasia, could you introduce yourself as you'd like to be presented. Sure. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, my name is Nastasia Osipova and I was born in Kiev in mid-80s. I was born and raised here and then I immigrated to the States where I now work as an assistant professor of Slavic studies in the University of Colorado and my area of expertise in this 20th and 21st century, all things cultural and literary. I'm currently in Kiev, Ukraine, where I came to do research to work at the very cheerful archive of the KGB. <laughs> I, I split my time between between New York and 
in Colorado and Kyiv. And flying to Kyiv right now was quite a schizophrenic moment because, as you said, American media has dialed up the hysteria to <laughs> quite a high degree. And yet I was reading Ukrainian news and, well, they were all about Christmas parties and uh, <laughs> sort of local crime. And uh, <laughs> so I, it was really impossible to judge what the hell is going on. Um, to give a little bit of the reason for why Ukrainians are so nonchalant about it is that, as you've said, the military conflict between Ukraine and Russia did not start a month ago. It's been going on for eight years. So ever since 2014, annexation of Crimea and the invasion of the east of Ukraine, the military conflict is ongoing. There's sort of daily exchanges of, I don't know, niceties. <laughs> and the ensuing slow-boiling conflict really became integrated into the fabric of daily life. And it really has marked Ukrainian culture. The issues with language and refugees and having Ukraine carved up into areas of slow-simmering conflict. And so so essentially what we're dealing with now is nothing new. Uh, it's not not a kind of radical departure from what's been going on before, but rather maybe a dialing up of a certain symbolical media space. Uh, Putin has started drawing up troops to a Ukrainian border this spring, uh, which makes me think that it's probably has less to do with the actual warfare and more with the dialogue with the states and the creation of the symbolical space. And yeah, I'm in Kiev right now. Um, it's very calm. Um, the Christmas holidays has just ended and now it's just life as usual. So when you arrived in Kiev 10 days ago, it didn't feel like you were about to go to war, which is the image we get from the American media. Oh, Ukrainians are fleeing. They are stocking up on pasta or whatever. Um, that's not actually... It's always cloudy. It's There's always cloudy. jets flying overhead. <laughs> right. You can hear soft sounds of rapid fire machine guns in the distance. A wind that chills to the bone. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was quite gray, uh, but that's nothing new. That's yeah. true traditionally dismal. And I would say it is quite cold and the gas, there are problems with gas. So I am ready to bust out my mom's fur coat at any moment. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I would say that in comparison to the 2014-2015, when the military conflict just started, there is a really, really stark difference. There are no signs of, let's say, mobilization, alarm on the streets. Everybody's hanging out in cafes and nightclubs and everything is happening as usual. It might have to do with the fact that the army has become much more professional. So there's stable divisions in the east of Ukraine and no volunteers are needed. Nobody's being recruited. But as I said, generally, no one is really talking about war and certainly no one is fleeing. I did have a funny moment here where my brother, who lives in the States, has read the Wall Street Journal and called in panic because I think he read the op-ed. I think the title was like something like, Will Russia airstrike Kiev tomorrow? <laughs> and so he had a panic attack and sort of tried to convince parents to run to the States as soon as possible. But that's not generally the atmosphere here. In general, the official message is that there won't be an invasion. Again, who knows who to trust? Recently, I spoke with a friend of mine who works in the, well, he works in Lugansk area with orphans and he was trying to gouge whether he needs to evacuate them and was given no clear message. I mean, I think in English speaking, media is 
recent memory, there is this scenario in Afghanistan where very quickly there was a dissolution of order and the state. And there was this idea that you can't get out. And I think that that's the immediate image from anybody who's not on the ground. They think, okay, path of circulation are already compromised by COVID regulations. And so it's playing into that as a baseline of what people think about Mm -hmm. when they think about moving bodies across state lines. One thing about Afghanistan, though, of course, the uh, American media was saying uh, Kabul wouldn't fall for another 90 days, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, it was like three days later. I mean, it also, though, is happening in a time where people generally are distrusting mainstream media sources more than they had in the past um, as media has become more decentralized. But I wonder, just as a primer, could you give us um, a little bit of context about the Maidan revolution, the conflict in 2014? I think some people are unclear why, even putatively, why Russia is invading Ukraine. Um, I know there's some long tail historical reasons and there's also some short term... mean to put you on the spot. So you can even just say it in like the cultural imagination. What is the reason why Russia got into an armed conflict in 2014? Okay. Wow. (laughs) Um, So to give a very short answer, there was a popular uprising in Kiev in 2013 and 2014, which ended with the ousting of a vastly unpopular and corrupt president. And Russia jumped on the opportunity of a moment of civil unrest and uncertainty in Ukraine and very quickly seized the Crimea, the peninsula, and then also tried to manipulate the perspective of the Maidan protesters, trying to paint them as exclusively neo-Nazi. Again, this is a thorny subject because because while there were far-right divisions present in Maidan, they were not the exclusive force that was used and manipulated by Russian media, and they moved into the east. That was not an official invasion. There were Russian military present, but incognito. And since then, we have this kind of slow military conflict, which is not really advancing. And that's kind of the state of the last eight years. Why this recent escalation, if we can call it, I'm not sure. It might have something to do with the fact that the Crimean campaign really boosted Putin's popularity at the time among his own people. And we know that last year has been really hard in Russia ever since Navalny was put into prison. There were waves of public unrest. And so maybe this strange jostling for symbolic control or maybe has something to do with that, but it's really, really hard to guess. Um, if I may. Yeah, that's a perfect ground to just understand where this is coming from. Because I think in the American media, it kind of comes out of left field or why suddenly, or Mm -hmm. what did Ukraine do? Or, and of course it's much more complicated than that. Um, there is this essay that Putin published this past summer where he paints a picture of his conception of Russia. And I wonder if you can speak to that and also the Ukrainian perspective on that particular narrative. Right. Um, So the history of Ukraine as a national state is very, very complicated because throughout centuries it's been controlled under a number of empires and really came to exist within its own territorial bounds that, that we know now in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. For anyone who really wants a good summary of this complicated history, I highly recommend a book by Sergei Plahi called The Lost Empire. He's a professor of history teaching at Harvard and he paints a thorough history of the contested territory between the Russian Empire, Ukrainian visions of nationhood, Polish Empire. It's a convoluted story. Um, So Putin has this vision of Ukraine as part of Russia and that it's actually a modern phenomenon that we even think of Ukraine as separate 
separate. And he has this kind of like, uh, as some people were talking about it in our community, Putin is keen on expanding the Overton window of what we imagine Russia to be so that it's naturalized mm-hmm. that Ukraine and Belarus are part of a kind of naturally pre-existing, almost with a kind of inverse land back type of rhetoric. Like this has always been our territory. He goes been, back to like some root proto language to describe like, the... Yeah, that Ukrainian means borderland and he has this whole... Speak to this. False etymology. Yeah, totally. Oh God, um, I'm not sure I can unpack it. It's a... We see a lot of attempts to do very crude historical, retroactive, symbolical land grabs on behalf of Putin. It stands no criticism. So it's really hard to engage with, but it's, yeah, it really is nonsense. <laughs> so you see this and are just like, this is totally specious. Like none of this tracks. Mm-hmm. He's It's false etymology. It's magical histories. He says it's the Mongols' fault that they caused the fall of a kind of primordial <laughs> Russia in the 13th century. And were it not for, not Genghis Khan, I'm sorry, my uh, history is uh, how I wrote it somewhere. Um, if it weren't for Batu Khan, um, then Russia would have never been divided. The Slavic people would still be one. And it's the fault of 19th and early 20th century Polish aristocracy who decided to say that only Ukraines were Slavs and that Russians were something different. And it's a modern phenomenon. Without Maybe we can spare ourselves the history of the Kiev and Rus Tatar-Mongol invasion and the formation of the Moscovy principality and so on. Um, <laughs> but I think what is consistent is the attempts of Putin's administration to make incursions into retroactive historical rewriting and manipulation of historical memory. Uh-huh. So what has been very effective in the past is the manipulation of the World War II history, which of course right now is used as this arch victory of the Soviet Union that Putin tries to put himself as a successor. And during World War II, well, Ukrainian nationalist movement has this unfortunate history of collaborating with the Nazi forces. And that fact, which okay, it's unfortunate, did happen, but it also can be discussed with its complexities, has been used during the beginning of the 2014-2015 conflict as an excuse for painting all of Ukraine as land of fascists. And Ukrainian official national politics really didn't help because some of those Nazi collaborators were glorified and turned into heroes of Ukraine, were given an official status post-mortem. So there is this consistent attempt to use contested history for the purposes of contemporary propaganda. And this recent speech attempting to paint Kiev Ross as a sort of proto-empire of which Russia is a successor is just one of those attempts. Um, do, like, Russian people buy this? Is there actually, like, a popular desire in Russia for Ukraine to become part of Russia again? Do they Are they actually excited by that idea? Does it actually get Putin points to be like, yeah, we're going to bring Ukraine back into Russia? And likewise, do people, I mean, how big is a, if it exists organically at all, a return to Russia movement within your Ukraine itself? Because I know that east of the country, there are some Russian speakers, like first language, and then towards the west, it's more Ukrainian speakers' first language, I well, believe? Yeah. So the, the question of language, of course, is a very interesting one because Ukraine has um, multiple languages and the Russian language is the second largest spoken language after Ukrainian. Um, right. So east of the country is predominantly Russophone. South is as well. Center Kiev. Well, I grew up in a Russophone family and during my lifetime, the proportion of people speaking Ukrainian and Russian has been sh- shifting more and more towards Ukrainian. But But it's a complicated issue because not everyone who speaks 
Russian is the Putin supporter uh-huh. <laughs> and not everyone who speaks Russian is an ethnic Russian, mm. right? So we have a lot of people who are ethnic Ukrainians who grew up speaking primarily Russian or a mix of Russian and Ukrainian. So yes, while Putin did try to manipulate this fact that there are Russophone people living in Ukraine and saying that he is moving in there to protect their rights, that doesn't really graft on the reality of the situation. Um, what is important is that Ukraine is one of the few post-Soviet states that means democratic regime. Yes, it's massively corrupt, but at the same time, presidents do get elected. And for most Russian speakers, questions of culture and language are secondary, but the fact that they're still living in a less repressive and democratic environment do matter. And so Putin's counter saying that it's really the West that is keeping Ukraine from enjoying whatever he offers. The average Ukrainian does not buy that narrative. The average Ukrainian prefers to be aligned with a, At least a democracy, democratic, not aligned a with kleptocracy. Not, right, not a kleptocracy. Yeah. Yes, not a kleptocracy, relatively democratic. Also, well, Ukraine is a nicely chaotic place where it's pretty easy to circumvent all laws, which, <laughs> which kind of creates its own ecosystem. Yeah, actually, yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine who spent a lot of time in Lugansk and he said, well, the first line of defense against Putin's invasion in 2014, 2014, 15, were sort of small business owners Mm. who figured out that if they get absorbed by Russia, they stand no chance in willing and dealing. They'll just be absorbed by Russian economy or by much more strictly enforced Russian laws. So no, there is no popular movement to join Russia. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's good to have that clarified. Um, I mean, I, I know I was there very, very briefly in 2014 after the Maidan conflict. And I was so impressed by the amount of more informal organizing, especially on the level of artists and writers. Is that energy still there? Do you still see that in Kiev? Unfortunately not. I think when you came shortly after Maidan, you caught a tail end of mass mobilization that was very hopeful, seemed to spring from the ground up. Unfortunately, since then, the polarizing logic of war and the logic of mutual propaganda and Mm. counter-propaganda did leave a mark on the cultural symbolic space. So this kind of mobilization of artists or intellectuals was dampened by a number of factors. A lot of them, the ones who felt more, I don't know, patriotically inclined, did go to the East and uh, saw unsavory things that did not align with their expectations. People went to the East for all sorts of reasons. Some of them patriotic, others had to do with petty crime or not petty crime. So seeing this cauldron really dampened the sense of agency. Then, shortly after Russia's invasion, unfortunately, Ukraine tried to counter Russian propaganda with its own counter-propaganda and with the tight control of the media space. A number of Russian websites got banned and TV as well. This sort of movement of trying to preserve civil space through censorship did change the temperature of things. Could you give us a sense of how the media space feels different in Ukraine versus, say, in the U.S.? There were several studies that came to the conclusion that Ukrainian social media space is one of the most hostile and violent in the world, But the nature of this hostility is quite different than what we're used to in American media sphere. There's far less of a self-policing. Cancel culture has not arrived yet. The nature of those confrontations with their consequences are sometimes non-existent or sometimes the result in physical confrontations. And just to give maybe some examples that played out in the art sphere, there were a number of attacks by the far-right groups and art exhibit by David Chichkan was physically destroyed and raided by the uh, C-14 
they're neo-Nazis. Uh, more recently, discussions in this very interesting place called Izalatse was also invaded by neo-Nazis who didn't do much, but at the same time, their presence was highly unpleasant, as you can imagine. So those are the stakes. Just to give a few words about this Izalatse, it originally existed in Donetsk. It was a post-industrial space that used to be a factory that later was turned into an art loft. And then when Donetsk was taken over by pro-Russian separatist forces, they kicked out all the artists and they've opened an, a concentration camp there. Not to be sensationalist, but what, what exactly does that mean in the 2020s? Well, it's a prison where people get put without due judicial process and are kept and tortured for unknown time until they die or until they sometimes they're held for ransom. So if their relatives can buy them out, sometimes they're allowed to leave. But essentially, it's a massive prison, which is not controlled by any judicial due process. Wow. But since then, this art space, Zalatse, has moved to Kiev, and they also have a branch in the small salt mining village right outside of Donetsk, and they're very attentive to the facts of military culture into Ukrainian daily discourse, and their discussions do get uh, harassed by neo-Nazis. Are there any subcultural analogies to the sort of media-centered political groups in the United States, sort of adjacent to like neo-traditional alt-right type people. Oh, I think Julian's uh, asking, yeah, like how in the Twitter space, there's a lot of very online groups that are almost like a kind of cosplaying of neo-Nazism, although, but then is neo-Nazism, right? Yeah, well, that's a fun element about Ukraine. It's really hard to imagine from American side of things. The Twitter sphere and the internet is really not as much of a presence yet. Um, things play out on the streets. Mm. People know each other personally. The deep cavernous tunnels of the internet consciousness just haven't been that <laughs> mined yet. As far as the far right presence, there's specialists who are more equipped to speak about it than me. But even there, there's a lot of confusion. Yes, there are some hardcore neo-Nazis. But then we also have things like Azov Battalion, who are nominally neo-Nazis. And yet, to the best of my knowledge, have not done any of the activities that would suggest neo-Nazi leanings. They did not intimidate the Jewish population. They're just involved in the military conflict, which is strange, right? As far as the internet sphere, it's not that anxious, neurotic, or involved as it is in the States, where people articulate their identities through Reddit or Twitter. I think the regional and class allegiances overpower the strong ideological divides. There are exceptions to that, but for the most part, regional logic and situational logic blurs the ideological distinctions. Um, so as the result, we have strange things of, I don't know, Jewish boys joining the neo-Nazi groups without really meaning any neo-Nazi agenda, but they like to look or there's no one else to hang out with. Um, yeah, it's, it's confusing for sure. <laughs> You are relaying earlier the story of a friend of yours who's spending time in the Lugansk region, noticed the way that soldiers of the two sides or soldiers and civilians interact. Right. Um, from what I hear from my friends who, because of work, have to go to Donetsk, Lugansk region, they say that, well, the war has been going on for eight years and many of the participants on the separatist side or Ukrainian army side are local guys who've known each other for their entire lives and uh, 
sometimes they exchange bullets and sometimes they exchange jokes and they call each other up to tell anecdotes or discuss news and find out what's going on. So in other words, even in the close proximity of a military conflict, it is not a legible one side against the other situation. It's much more hybrid and that requires much more media sensitivity than it is shown. There's also another story that I read coming from Western media about uh, I guess the Pentagon released some statements saying that R- Russia had a combination of deep fakes and actors and props to create fake videos of Ukraine committing like atrocities against uh, <laughs> Russian soldiers or citizens, which is a really crazy 4D chess kind of preemptive thing to announce. But um, yeah, those things have been a staple of media sphere for the last eight years since the war started. Again, Ever since 2015, there were fake news on both sides. There are some famous examples where Russians show this video of a mother whose son was allegedly crucified on a Ukrainian tank. It was a complete fake. It was proven to be fake. Promises of preemptive media strikes and this hybrid warfare. Yes, that happens almost every day uh, on both sides. Ukraine comes out and says, we've unearthed a group of fake protesters who are being paid by Russia and they were supposed to stage Pavlensky-like performances with burning tires, but don't worry, we've neutralized this plot. It's really hard to tell what, yeah. what's happening, but it is very funny to see that even in the official media sphere, there is this recognition that everything is fake and everything is performative. And so... I'm curious. I mean, of course, art and media are always having a kind of cybernetic relationship. And art's duty supposedly is to make truths visible in society, right? That's like one of the classical reasons why any art has value. Can you speak a little bit about how this messy media sphere, this messy symbolic space, how that has impacted what a public art gesture might look like? What I notice a lot among the artists is this kind of cautious self-censorship, especially when they're trying to speak about doing historical re-engagements with Soviet aesthetics or even acknowledging the leftist leanings of the Ukrainian avant-garde artists becomes very problematic. Really? Um, huh. I can give examples for that. So for instance, Ukrainian artist uh, Nikita Kadan, he attempted to organize in the Ukrainian State Art Museum an exhibit of an artist called uh, Georgi Narvut, who was a very important modernist artist who was also responsible for the contemporary Ukrainian heraldics designed first Ukrainian currency, but also he was aligned with the constructivist movement and had a stint of designing posters for workers, for leftist movement. And when Nikita tried to include those artworks into the retrospective exhibit, the museum just couldn't handle this and they pulled back and no exhibit happened. And also, okay, I might get my facts a little wrong, but he found a collection of social surrealist art that somehow got preserved in the small town of Kmitiev. And Nikita wanted to organize a museum of Soviet art, right? Okay, it exists. You can approach it in any way possible. He was met with massive resistance on the local level, from the police, lots of intimidation. And yeah, and I hear the same points raised out by a lot of people. And I think this kind of atmosphere of war is what is responsible for that. So then can you clarify? So, I mean, Ukraine isn't Russia. Uh, It does have at least this pretense of a more democratic system. But what do you think Mm -hmm. happened in terms 
terms of cultural leaders in Ukraine that closed that window of expression, that shift of, of tolerance? Um, I think the, the window of tolerance got shut down remarkably quickly. So Maidan, the protest presented an opportunity to reinvent what it means to be a Ukrainian citizen and open it up to kind of a vision of civil space that is not ethnicity-based, not nationality-based. And yet, immediately after the events in the Crimea and in the East, there was a sense, again, I might be wrong, uh, but to me it appeared that there was a sense of confusion and artists felt that they didn't have the license to defend the complexity in the face of the military crisis. Hmm. And I think that with time, it became increasingly harder to take this license. A certain hybridity is tolerated, right? One can still publish research into, I don't know, Soviet aesthetics, but if things were to enter a broader arena, it's really hard to have this public discussion. The readiness to to discuss complexity, right? Historical complexity, political complexity, especially when anything that has to do with the legacy of the left um, gets brought up, people become really, really sensitive and they feel they don't have the right to bring it up because anything left is seen as communist and communist seen as synonymous with Russian invasion. Huh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a recommendation, if anyone is interested, I would recommend um, Alexander Burlaka, who is an architectural historian and a specialist in modernism, I think he was a sort of local agent for Owen Heatherly, a British architectural historian of Soviet modernism. And he has some very fascinating illustrations, images, and accounts of the way this confusion about what to do with Soviet legacy played out in real time. There's no real, let's say, party lines about how to deal with this cultural space. So what we see is a lot of rubble and uh, sort of swampy atmosphere. I mean, that's interesting because it's like you really understand the passage of cultures when you think back to ruins of antiquity or whatnot, this is the way it happens. It's not just that everything gets totally decimated and then the new arrives. I mean, sometimes that happens, but most uh, suffer this slower dissolution where they Mm -hmm. sort of become impossible objects or impossible symbols that nobody can engage with, not negatively, not positively. That's a very interesting framework. Yeah. um, I noticed that ever since the war started, a lot of people became very interested in psychoanalysis and Lacanian psychoanalysis in order to describe the strange censorship and silences that enter into public speech. It's not that there are no debates. Very often there is evasion. There is a sort of erasure of language. There is a Ukrainian writer who, she, I think she splits her time between Berlin and Kiev. Her name is Evgenia Belarusitz, whose work really does try to address the dissolution of language uh, that happens in the face of all of this undigested complexity, silencing of historical past, inability to deal with refugees who come from the East. And I also wanted to give a visual image of the confusion with regards to the material past. I was in Kiev in, I believe it was 2016 or 15, and I was actually taking a walk with Sasha Burlaka, and we passed by a monument to Shores who was a kind of communist figure. And it's a beautiful equestrian sculpture in the center of Kiev. And at some point, certain brigade of, let's say, volunteers decided to demolish it, right? So they took a saw and started sewing off one of the horse's legs. <laughs> so they took the leg out and then police arrived because this was not a sanctioned demolition. So they stopped them, right? So then there was the statue with where a horse was missing a leg. And then the state, in order to save this monument from the 
the, let's say the volunteers, um, it created this, I can't describe it in any other way than apotropaic border <laughs> where they surrounded the statue with a cage over which Ukrainian flags were draped. <sighs> right. So the idea was that people who believe themselves to be Ukrainian patriots who cannot stand the side of the monuments to communist leaders will not dare to cross the border of Ukrainian flag, right? They will not (laughs) deface it. Um, What an example. Yeah. And so it stayed in this absurd way for years. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great image. I do wonder what role digital media is playing in this circulation of signs. In a general sense, does Ukraine operate right now within the major US, EU stack? Is it still Google, Facebook, Amazon? Does Amazon operate in Ukraine? No, Amazon is not here yet. But basically, yes. Until recently, most actually Ukraine was more hooked in with Russian uh, search engines, Yandex, uh, it got banned recently. I mean, you can still access everything if you install a VPN. It's not so hard. But uh, after that, actually, there were a lot of problems with, I think, GPS, where they were mostly connected to Russian maps. Uh, I mean, the search engine that had maps, and now it's switching to Google. So it is kind of reorienting towards American infrastructure. Yeah. Well, speaking about media, maybe you could spend a moment introducing Zucada Press, because it does focus on Russian and Eastern European writers bringing that work into translation. Can you just say a few words about, yeah, the framework for Zucada? Yes. Zucada Press was uh, launched in 2003. By me and Matthew Whitley, who is a poet and anthropologist. Since then, it became my solo project. It was born out of the Occupy Wall Street moment where there was a feeling of absolute agency. And since then, it developed as an engine for me to drag into Anglophone media space the work of Russian and soon Ukrainian or Eastern European writers, broadly defined, who are doing formally interesting work, sometimes with the political leftist agenda. And all of the books that we publish are bilingual. I put them out with a lot of care. And my mission there is to complicate the Russian-American relations and to showcase the work of artists who maybe do not conform to this very rigid binary vision that is informed by the Cold War. One of our earliest publications was born out of Maidan, when we wanted to collect the voices of various art collectives, public assemblies that were functioning during Maidan. And so we collected a lot of interviews and published a broadsheet newspaper in English, which became a bit of a revelation, I think, to American audience at the time. Um, and in Kiev as well, people were excited yeah. that all this thinking was going to break this language barrier and that there was you know, other pathways that were being established. Mm-hmm. And so you're about to release your next title. Can you say a few words about that? Sure. Um, it takes us a, a while to put out books because we, we do a good job. <laughs> um, and most of the work is done by volunteer translators, a lot of whom are Colors. And now we're preparing a release of the book by an Israeli-Russian writer whose name is Leonid Schwab. The title of his book will be Ever-Burning Pilot. He belongs to a slightly older generation of Russophone writers who maybe present an interesting perspective into literature that is done in Russia outside of the Russian borders and a kind of an imagination of the abstract anti-imperial utopia is present in the landscape of his poems as well. Um, and for those who are familiar with the works of Maria Stepanova, um, she wrote an introduction for this edition and was friends with Lyanyi Schwab. 
Super. So this gives a portal beyond the American media screen. Um, I feel like it is a new kind of, like instead of an iron curtain, it's like a text-based curtain or something where the New York Times, the Guardian, the FT, the Wall Street Journal will write a few things and everybody else more or less repeats that story, even in other languages. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more important than ever to have a press like this that gives you a direct line to voices that are operating beyond that smoke screen. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I know that I've been repeating it on the refrain, but the situation is confusing and illegible on the ground. And it's very important to maintain a tone of complexity and subtlety, uh, which gets completely drowned out in the increasingly Cold War-informed mass media that creates this very schizophrenic echo chamber. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know here in Germany, it's complicated by um, by questions of green energy and the trade-offs of that. But if you dig deeper, as somebody else in our community pointed out, there's this narrative that Germany is completely dependent on Russian gas and that its fate is in the hands of Russia. But in fact, that's not even 100% true. I mean, it is one source of energy to Europe. And it's very easy to take these climate narratives and twist them and to take energy facts and twist them. And I think even in Germany, there's a bit of a distortion of what relationship Russia has to Europe and how Belarus Mm -hmm. and Ukraine may be being used as pawns as opposed to just giving agency to Ukraine and to Belarus. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable the extent to which Ukraine has been as a state, as an entity with an agency has been completely taken out of this grand media picture which presents the great negotiations between Russia, the states and Europe and Ukraine is really an afterthought and no one is really thinking about how anxious of a situation it is creating for the people of Ukraine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're spending your days in Kiev at the KGB archives. And of course, Putin famously has ties to the KGB. Um, what is your reason for being in the KGB archives? Yeah, um, this is perhaps a good example of the way in which Ukraine is more liberal than Russia. As people might know, the KGB archives are not really accessible in Russia to the general historians. Um, so if you want to access records of the people who suffered during the Stalinist repressions or later in Russia, you have to show proof that you are a direct relative of the person who was arrested. In Ukraine, on the other hand, the former KGB archives were made public in 2011. You just need to write a letter of interest and do give a scan of your passport and you'll be allowed in a quite grim looking archives. I'm not going to lie about it. Can you describe it? Yeah. So first of all, you have to go to the former KGB headquarters that also, fun fact, used to be a Gestapo headquarters uh, when Kiev was under the Nazi occupation during World War II. And the name of the street is Malopadvalne, which translates into a little cellar street. <laughs> um, so that creates uh, kind of a charming ambiance and then you get a pass surrounded by people who are probably cops for the most part none of whom are wearing any masks and then you go into an archive which is a small very bureaucratic space for some reason amusingly their toilet doesn't have toilet paper they just cannot buy it Uh, but yeah and then you order you work with historians and you tell them what you want and they start bringing you very dusty dirty personal cases of uh, of people who are arrested. I'm there working on what I hope will be my book. 
I'm interested in historical poetics of prison and memoir writing. And I'm, let's say a transition between people who were arrested in the 1920s and who are the leftists or aligned with the avant-garde experiments who served their term during the Stalin era and then came out in the 50s and 60s and started influencing the artistic and political project. For those who are interested, there's a great introductory book into the subject that just came out with Verso. It is by Ilya Budraisky, a Russian historian, and it's called Dissidents Among Dissidents. It's about leftist resistance to the Bolshevik state. And so I'm interested in tracing some of those histories, but I'm particularly interested in the aesthetic questions and in thinking about prison as a, let's say, horrifying artistic laboratory where traditions get clashed and certain artistic forms get generated that later influence the art and representation outside of prison. And of course, the project is inspired by the contemporary wave of political repressions in Russia. Now we have more political prisoners than we had during the late stagnation period. And among those political prisoners are very young people. So we can think about the Doxa case, the student-run journal, and those four students have been almost a year under house arrest for charges of inciting riots among the underaged. They just ran a student newspaper. And now they're sitting at home and of course they're starting to write poems about confinement. And I'm interested in thinking about what historical models they're looking at in terms of kind of literary models. That was a vivid depiction. Thank you for that. It's interesting to think about this kind of very literal imprisonment and oppression that you're studying right now counter the requirement to express yourself in the West on these platforms and a different kind of imprisonment that you have by, you know, you're forced to express yourself. You're then stuck into a certain algorithmic set. Um, You then have to express yourself in a certain idiom within that set. Otherwise, you end up getting police by peers, and that doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left. There are these different forms of censorship. I don't mean this to be some kind of libertarian. It's just interesting to look at explicit prison models and more implicit prison models. Just to this question about sort of censorship, internal and external, this is just something that I was thinking about while walking around Kiev bookstores. This existence of the open police archive has made a mark on the new books that are coming out in Kiev. It's very common, I think, for an aspiring writer to go to the former KGB archives, pull out some file, then write a sort of documentary novel. Um, And I'm really frustrated with the tone of a lot of those novels where they extol martyrdom for martyrdom's sake, but there is no further political reflection happening. It's all this sort of witness pathos. And so this is one of my interests in like trying to insert historical reflection in this cultural discourse in Ukraine, because this kind of explosion of documentary material happens with seemingly underdeveloped critical methodology as to how to absorb this information in a way that doesn't just get reduced to individual private histories of of sufferings of family saga. Right. It's like the reduction of martyrdom to romance novel. Yeah, exactly. And sort of the most recent scandal, of course, has to do with the memorial in Babi Yar, this historical site in the center of Kiev that was a site of mass execution of Jews and Roma and Ukrainian nationalists and communists. And then it was a concentration camp. And then it was sort of nicely censored by the Soviet state immediately. And now their attempts to kind of memorialize it. So their opening of the memorial started with a great unveiling of a installation by surprise surprise Marina Abramovich uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's a sort of 
Instagram ready wall rather than an opportunity to develop critical historical discourse. Wasn't it like crystals? It was like a weeping wall, but there were large quartz crystals that were secured into it as though you could magically heal yourself in front of it. I mean, there's this term that we've been using here, the new confusion. And uh, I think maybe it's applicable in this context as well. Um, There was something that you were saying earlier earlier before we were recording, where you called the situation in Ukraine a kind of porridge, where there is just nothing fixed to hold on to, uh, semiotically, politically. And so as a way of rounding out this conversation, I mean, not to put you on the spot, be the, the, the voice of Ukraine here, but if there's one perspective or one meta focus that you feel is missing or that often gets lost in this smokescreen of English media, what would that be? Um, yes, I would say that I would hope that, that there will be an instinct of resistance to binary conflict, that things are not legible, they're not simple, they're slow moving and probably will continue festering for a very long time. And so this easy implotment of conflict as something that can explode and be easily released um, is perhaps should be innately resisted. Yes, absolutely. February 8, 2022. The last book about a week ago, I, I think since then, there's both a sense of relative calm. On the other hand, I would say that the disappearance of people from the streets was quite visible. Usually, Kiev is quite plagued by traffic, but now the roads were very empty. And it's really hard to judge what the reason for that was. Perhaps it's COVID, Omicron is exploding there. Perhaps it's the fact that people are working remotely, but perhaps it's that people are kind of quietly leaving. There's still no mass mobilization. Uh, War discussion is not present in mass media. There are no calls to go to the east to join self-defense groups. But there's a kind of visible quieting down of the urban space. And yet everybody really hopes that nothing happens. That It is, again, always helpful just to hear on the ground witness. Um, There was this crazy slip by Bloomberg where I guess they slate a bunch of possible headlines. And I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of Russia invades Ukraine was... It was literally those three I think words. it may have just been, yeah, like Russia invades <laughs> oh Ukraine was published and they had to run a errata saying, we regret the fact that this t- headline was erroneously published. It was a mistake. We're looking into why that happened. I mean, <laughs> probably just a mistake, but so yeah. This is so insane. I've been hanging out with some friends in Kiev who work with Western media, sometimes doing translation and sometimes helping American journalists with finding context. And they were all laughing about the treatment of the Ukrainian conflict in American media. So one friend of mine says like, yes, I've been subtitling this video, translating this video where American journalists goes to the front line and okay, there's business as usual. There's some military guy in his head and he's asked about what do you see? What's going on? He was like, well, on the other side of the border, we see a helicopter. It's a Russian helicopter. It's patrolling the border. It does it every day. On our side, we have the same helicopters. They also patrol our borders every day. That's it. And then she says that by, in the evening, she sees this article, right? That's like, oh, under the heavy laden sky and <laughs> the atmosphere with wartime anxiety, uh, 
the stern Ukrainian border police is preparing for the invasion, right? Um, <laughs> things like that. Anastasia Osipova, thank you very much for coming on the show today and sharing your thoughts on this very messy conflict and giving us some insight into the perspective of somebody on the ground in Kiev beyond the media smokescreen. Um, we will link to the references you mentioned in the show notes um, and definitely do check out the forthcoming book by Leonid Schwab called Ever Running Pilot. <laughs> exactly. I did not come up with it. <laughs> it's a great, it's a beautiful book design as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show and we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this New Model special report and thank you Anastasia Osapova for sharing your insights and experiences with us. Nearly all of the references mentioned in this episode are linked in the show notes, including cicadapress.net. That's all for now and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by low internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Be sure to sign up for the channel mailing list at channel.xyz and stay updated on our upcoming Season 1 public launch.